Please be seated. Well, good morning again to all of you. I want to say welcome to those of you who are joining us by video. Some of you are far away and tuning in as part of this community right now. Some of you are as close as across the hall in our contemporary service. And I'm really glad to be connected like this and learn important things about Jesus together. If you're in one of our worship venues here in this building, then you'll see our ushers coming up the aisles right now in both worship venues with Bibles. And I invite you, if you don't have a Bible that you brought with you or that you're using already, or maybe a Bible app on your phone or tablet, please feel free to borrow one from them. You can use it and put it on the shelf in the back of the room after the worship service today. I'd love for you to have the opportunity with with your own eyes to see the stories of Jesus' life that are teaching us and instructing us as we grow together. We've been in a journey together as a church called According to Luke, right? Every week we're reading the story of Jesus' life according to his biographer, Luke, the gospel according to Luke. And we're learning about the beauty of the grace and the power of Jesus' life and learning more and more together each week. What is this life that he calls us to when Jesus says, come, follow me? And we're pausing over a topic in that story right now in the month of January over the dynamic of brokenness and transformation in our lives. And last week we talked, about, we, we talked about how the broken belong. That was the title of last week's message. We talked about coming out of hiding and finding the authenticity that comes from trusting in Jesus' grace. And next week we're going to welcome guests from Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge. And some of you may know who that is. If you've been around here a long time, I imagine that you do. They're going to be sharing stories of life transformation from experiences of alcohol and drug addiction. And parents, I want you to know that ahead of time so you know how to handle that with your kids. We're also going to be sharing stories of healing and transformation from our own community also. That's always a powerful week. We often do it in May. You may be used to that, but we're doing it in January this year as part of this series. This week, what I want to talk to you about is the very powerful dynamic of sin and forgiveness. This is probably one of the most important topics I ever get to talk to you about. And we don't always get to focus on it as directly as we will today. This topic of sin and forgiveness is one that's really difficult for us in our culture. And when we get it wrong, and I think we get it wrong a lot, it really messes with us. It messes with our hearts. It messes with our spirit, with our relationships, with our relationship with God. So if any of that matters to you, then this is a pretty big deal. But when we get this right, On the positive side, when we understand the biblical truths at work here, and when we experience, on the one hand, an awareness of our own sinfulness, and on the other hand, the liberating wash of God's amazing grace, it can be truly life transformational and provide a foundation for our lives that you can't find anywhere else. You know, let me talk about it this way. Last week, we talked about how the broken belong. And we talked about the the brokenness we all experience. We talked about hiding in our shame, how we are all victims in some sense of this big cosmic brokenness that you could call sin with a capital S. We're all victims of that. Unfortunately, we're not only victims. We, each of us, are all also co-conspirators. We are also perpetrators of this sin and brokenness. And this is something nobody likes to admit, me especially. This is hard. It's probably hard everywhere in every time, but I think it's especially hard in the culture that we live in. 
It is really difficult. We are very reluctant ever to say that something is just plain wrong. And to call it sin is ridiculously hard. When was the last time you heard somebody use the word sin in public? If ever, we're very uncomfortable with this. Sometimes I do see that we can get ourselves all worked up about famous things done wrong by famous people far away from us. And then we can get all worked up and point out that's wrong and we'll vent something inside us that's all pent up on that. But those things really are much more the exception, even so, than the rule. You know, I remember this experience I had a number of years ago. You'll know how long ago it was in a second. A friend of mine started watching the first few seasons of The Bachelor, right? This was, I think, back in the 20th century, maybe even. (laughs) Maybe not that long ago. After a season or two, she said to a group of us, all friends, talking about things, she said, you know, it's weird. It's weird, she said, how he goes on these overnight dates with the finalists, one right after another. He's sleeping with one of them, one right after another. And it really bugged her. I think she felt there was some objectification, and she really was, she, she, but, but she was really afraid of becoming judgmental about this. She was so uncomfortable. She wanted, I could feel it, she wanted to say it was wrong. And I suggested, are you, are you trying to say that it's wrong to do that? But she wouldn't. All she could say is that it was Weird. It's just weird, she said. Hmm. Truthfully, I'm really even a little hesitant to share that particular story with you because I think it maybe even makes us focus especially on the sins of sexuality. And sometimes that's the category that we can all get ourselves obsessed about when in truth, I think we might be even worse at talking about the sins of greed that come from the way that we handle our stuff, our wealth, our money, or the economic practices that we share, or the sins of violence that we all just put up with and think are normal, or the sins of discrimination that are so insidious. Feels kind of heavy in here right now, doesn't it? (laughs) I bet some of you are thinking, man, I chose the wrong week to wake up and come to church today. (laughs) Or if you're new here, maybe you're thinking, what's up with the sign out front? I saw it said community of grace. What's with you guys getting all heavy about sin? What a drag. I get it. Really, I do. This is incredibly uncomfortable for me, too. We don't want to get all judgmental with one another. That's not who we want to be. And sometimes we think that it's gracious, that it's grace just to let it all go, live and let live. But that's not actually what grace is. That's what we think grace is before we find out how good grace actually is. Grace is way better than that. That's just dishonesty. That's just laziness. That's just an unwillingness to look honestly at ourselves and at the world around us and tell the truth and go, this is hurting people. God wants better for us than this. And so I want to talk to you today about how to be both honest and full of grace. And there is this story from Jesus' life. Truly, there are many. But there's this one that we are reading today. Jesus just blows me away, you guys. He's so good at telling the truth with love and giving forgiveness at the same time. And oh, we need that. So let's, let's read this story. Do you, do you have a Bible with you? Open up your Bibles, your Bible apps, whatever, to Luke chapter seven. We're gonna read a few more verses from this story that begins in verse 36. Luke 7, 36 is on page 15, 13 of your Quest Bibles. We're just gonna stay right here in the whole message today. So you can just leave this open if you want. 
Let me start by reading again the first few verses of this story. It says here, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. If you know anything about Jesus, does that already weird you out a little bit, right? Like we're so used to them being enemies and Jesus eating with sinners. But Jesus also went to have dinner with this Pharisee. We're going to find out later that his name is Simon. He went in there and he sat down, reclined at the table. That's how people ate them. They didn't have chairs. They had low tables. They leaned over. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. This is kind of a white special jar, and in it was perfume, really a a, a serious treasure. This is not easy to come by. And as she stood behind him, Jesus, behind Jesus, at his feet, she's weeping, you guys, as she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured this expensive perfume on them. Okay, a couple things to point out here. First of all, we don't know her name, and I'm bummed about that. (laughs) I wish that we did. We don't know her backstory. We're going to find out in a little bit that this Pharisee's name is Simon. Now, we don't know a lot of his backstory either, but I think we are suffering a little bit from a little bit of first century discrimination, not thinking that her name was as important to tell us as his name. But I really want to know, and I don't, but I'm going to make it up, and I'm going to call her Maria, okay? So her name is now Maria. It helps us think of people as a little bit more human when we know their names, all right? So Maria comes in, right? Here's a second thing, my second first impression on the story. Man, that's awkward, right? Like, it kind of makes me cringe when I read that. It's a, a humiliating thing, I think, for her to do. And not only that, but if I were in Jesus' place in that story, I think I'd feel embarrassed to be Jesus in that story also. And that maybe surfaces something for me. Because the story gives us no indication that he is embarrassed. It gives us no indication that he thinks this is in any way wrong or inappropriate. It's dramatic and it's telling, but it doesn't really freak him out in any way. And I think that's probably because he's so concerned about her heart. I think he's so tuned in to her journey and this experience that he's having that there's not really a lot of space left to be worried about the social conventions and how they're all supposed to feel about this strange behavior. Also, one more observation at the beginning. I no longer think that this was Maria's first encounter with Jesus. It doesn't tell us that she ever met Jesus before, and we have no earlier stories of her meeting Jesus before. But Jesus, in a few verses later, is going to explain her actions by explaining that when we are forgiven much, we love much that the way that she's acting is consistent with someone who's experienced an incredible amount of forgiveness and grace. I can only imagine that she's had at least one encounter with Jesus before, where he treated her differently than anybody else did, where he saw her heart, knew her story, cared about her. Maybe she's become a part of the group of people who are following him around and listening to him regularly and learning to live life from him. What we are seeing in her is a response to what Jesus has done in her life. Okay, that scene is open. And now in verse 39, how would you react if you were there seeing all this? Well, we find out how Simon did. When the Pharisee who had invited him, Jesus, saw this, man, you imagine what he was feeling. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, right? Maybe he's trying to check Jesus out, figure all this out. If he were a prophet, he would know who is touching him. And what kind of woman she is, 
that she is a sinner. Hmm. This is one of my favorite parts of this story. If he were a prophet, then he would know. And how does Simon know he doesn't know? All right? What's the end of that little syllogism? What's the end of that piece of logic that Simon is working out? If he were a prophet, then he would know. And he would send her away. He would treat her like she's supposed to be treated. He would judge her. He would reject her. He would know that she does not belong here in our company and get rid of her. That's what he would do. He would want nothing to do with her. Okay? First time I was, or in the early part, of me reading and studying this passage to share with you today, my first thought was this. Simon's got the difference wrong. It's not that Jesus doesn't know, he knows. And we think about her past encounters with Jesus, he probably knows it not only by being Jesus, but from experience also. And I thought the difference is not in the knowing, the difference is in the responding, right? Jesus knows the truth about us, but responds differently than we would. And I think that's true. I think that's true as far as that goes. But then I thought about it, a little bit longer and read it a little bit more closely. And I realized the difference is deeper than that. Simon said, if he were a prophet, he would know what sort of woman she is. That's what he would know. He would know what category she belongs in. He would know what label we can put on her, what identity we can assign to her, what category to file her under and forget about her. That is the essence of judging someone's sin. I heard someone say once, they gave a great definition of judging sin. When you judge someone, judgmentalism is when you, when you size them up and write them off. Right? When you size them up and write them off. I don't need to deal with them anymore. That's what, Jesus, that's what Simon thinks Jesus would know, what sort of woman this is. Her identity is sinner, sinful woman. Jesus doesn't actually know what Simon knows, does he? The difference is also in the knowing. He knows something different from what Simon knows. He does know what sort of woman this is. He knows that the sort of woman that she is is precious child of God. He knows her infinite value. There are no perfect people and there are no ordinary mortals, but precious children of God. And he knows what sort of God he is and what sort of God we worship, that it is God's heart to know her shame and to forgive her sins and to call her back to new life. And so Jesus has something to teach Simon. He says, Simon, I got something to say to you. And Simon goes, tell me, teacher. Good teachable spirit there, right? Jesus tells a little parable. He said, there were, there were two men who owed money to a certain money lender. Two debtors, one money lender. One owed him 500 denarii. A denarius was kind of a day's wages or so. 500 denarii, and one owed 50. I don't know, let's say roughly equivalent to $100,000 and $10,000, depending on where you live. Neither one of them can pay him back. Neither one, it could, may as well be monopoly money, right? I don't, can't pay that kind of money back. So the money lender forgives them both. Isn't it cool how we still use that word when we talk about forgiving an obligation or a debt, forgiveness? Literally, the word Jesus used, we would translate it, and so he graces them both. So he graced them both. And then Jesus asked Simon the question, which one of them is going to love him more? Which one of these two debtors will respond with more love to the money lender who has forgiven him? 
And Simon knows. He's like, well, the one who had the bigger debt forgiven, I suppose. And Jesus says, yep, you're right about that. And then he contrasts Simon the Pharisee's behavior with the woman. Let me read you a few verses here. Follow along with me if you would like. This is verses 44 through 47. Then Jesus turned toward the woman, but spoke to Simon. He said, do you see this woman here? Do you see her? I came into your house, your house, and you did not give me any water for my feet. A fairly common act of hospitality, by the way, in that day. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, a sign of welcome and fellowship. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, a gift of great honor, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. It's the conclusion there that I really want us to understand. Jesus offers this conclusion that cuts through the fog of our misunderstanding about sin and forgiveness like a lighthouse. He says this, her many sins have been forgiven. If you need one short sentence to try to remember everything that we're learning today, this would be the one. Two sides to this, truth and grace. Her many sins have been forgiven, right? There's truth. Her sins were many. Our sins are many. Let's not hide it. Let's not pretend it isn't so. Let's tell the truth about it. And then there's grace. Have been forgiven. Jesus forgives them. Let me ask you this question. Which side of this dynamic do you think you struggle more with on a day-to-day basis? Is it the truth side or the grace side? Are, are you still thinking on a regular basis, maybe even unreflectively, maybe without even realizing it, that your sins are actually few, at, at least comparatively speaking? You know, they're, they're not that big of a deal. I mean, you're not perfect. Nobody's perfect, right? But at least you're not like they are. And so it's okay, really. Or... Do you know how bad it is with you? You know what the darkness is, but you struggle. You struggle to live and to receive, to receive and to live in the reality that Jesus forgives you. Let me tell you a personal story about this. I think of life in terms of callings and responsibilities. And I have several callings, and so do all of you. A few of mine are. I have a calling as a pastor to preach the good news about Jesus Christ and to teach his word. I have a calling as a husband to love and serve Amy and to be faithful to her until death do us part. I have a calling to be a father to my daughter Evangeline and my son William. And I believe that God has given me responsibilities and expectations in each of these relationships and more. And so do you in the callings and responsibilities that make up your life. And I can only imagine that most of you will agree with me that God has expectations of me for how I will fulfill my calling in these relationships or anybody who exists in any kind of similar roles. And God wants me to carry out these callings faithfully. Let me, in the interest of time, flesh out just one of these examples for a moment. There are not words. There are not words for me to describe how precious my children are to me. I hope I will never have to, but I think I would probably die for them. When I see pictures of my kids in the middle of the day 
on my desk, or maybe they pop up on some notification of my phone, I see that picture, and what I want to do is cancel the rest of my meetings and drive to their school and pick them up and spend the rest of the day with them. I love my kids. And although it is hard for me to imagine how, I am convinced that God loves them even more than I do. That he wants the best for them, which, among other things, means he wants them to be fathered well by me. And as their father... I do some things right, I think. I hope I, I hope I do a number of things right. But I do a lot of things wrong. I fail regularly in a calling that is unspeakably important to me and more important to God. In certain seasons of my life, I think the words hurry up are the words I say to my kids more than anything else. And so I teach them on a regular basis that my schedule is more important to me than they are in that moment. I have spent too much time at my office and not enough time with them. And don't feel sorry for me. It's not your fault. I did this to myself. I get impatient with them in ways that have everything to do with my stuff and not really much to do with them. I have at different times disciplined without fairness, fostered unrealistic expectations, and failed to celebrate accomplishments well. Worse than all of that are the examples that they see in me when I'm not looking. They have seen me want to have the last word in an argument. They have seen that it's more important to me to win fights rather than to make peace and heal relationships. And not only have I done wrong by them in all these ways, but maybe even worse, someday they're going to repeat the stuff that I do and hurt other people down the road. They're going to screw up their kids later on if they ever have them. And you may think that these sins are big, or you may think that they are small. I don't know. But what you cannot think is that I am innocent. God entrusted them to me. And at whatever percentage, 10%, 20 90 I don't know, that I have failed them, the fact of the matter remains that I have. And I have failed God, who gave me this trust. And yet, I believe that Jesus says to me, your many sins are forgiven. Oh, that's so good. It's so much better to tell the truth. I would much rather hear the truth about my sins and hear that they are forgiven than to pretend before you that I'm actually pretty good, because I'm not. <laughs> and if the standing of my heart before God was based on I'm not as bad as that guy, that's pretty shaky. And I don't like shaky, I like solid. Solid is to know that I am known in truth. There's not something that's going to surprise Jesus later when he figures it out, that I am known in truth and loved in grace anyway. And that's something I can build a life on. What is it for you? What are your many sins? And are you tired of the game yet? Are you tired of minimizing them, hiding from them, managing them? Are you ready to be done yet with the I'm actually a pretty good person plan, hoping that nobody will ever actually see the dark corners that you hide? Oh, trying to deal with sin like that is hoping your bills go away if you just won't open them when they come. It's not a solution. Forgiveness is a solution. Here's what I want you to do. I want all of us to open our hearts to the Savior, to hear the truth and to receive forgiveness, to hear her many sins are 
are forgiven. His many sins are forgiven. Your many sins are forgiven. Washed clean, wiped away, written off, gone. Not only is it freeing, and friends, it is freeing. It changes you. Transforms you. Changes your heart. When you have been graced like that, it makes you gracious like that. And you know what? It doesn't work. It doesn't work when you think you don't have a whole lot to be forgiven for. Then it's fine. You're still better than them and you can still judge them. But when you know that you have been forgiven like that, then it makes you forgiving like that. When you've been loved like that, it creates in you a capacity to love like that. Whenever I see judgmentalism and condescension in someone, I know they still think they're okay. (laughs) Whenever I feel it creep up in my own heart, I know it's time for some good self-examination. Not so that I can then pretend that everything is okay. That's a different temptation. But rather so that my confidence in grace will be strong enough to look at what's wrong in me, in my relationships, in the world around me, and be strong enough to tell the truth unflinchingly and unjudgingly. And if you've, if you've never taken this step with the Savior before, you are in for some joy. You are about to walk in a level of freedom and confidence that does not come by any other means. Your many sins are forgiven, and it's a sweet thing. And if you've taken this step before, but you've kind of gotten a little bit complacent about it, you've gotten a little bit comfortable, you've gotten to the point where you're taking grace for granted, it's sweet to rediscover. It's sweet. I'm about to lead you in a prayer to receive the truth and the grace of Jesus. But before I do that, I want to set you up for this to last. And so I have to warn you about something. If this stays only at the private between me and Jesus level, it is very likely to fade with time. Maybe by tomorrow, maybe a little bit longer than that, but it is a natural effect in the human life. Sometime, someday, you might begin to wonder, wait, does Jesus really forgive that? What if he found out about this? Or other times, maybe even more likely, you'll start to get a little bit complacent a little bit comfortable. You'll probably fall back into the I'm doing okay mindset. And so the scriptures tell us, confess your sins to one another because we all need to meet grace with skin on. We need to hear it and see it and receive it and practice it in the actual embodied community that the Bible calls the body of Christ now. And so we do it regularly in our worship services in many different ways, really. We do it in smaller communities like growth groups. I'm looking forward to mine this afternoon. And in those valuable, invaluable relationships, we remind one another on a regular basis of the word of God spoken by the Savior Jesus himself that our sins, which are many, are forgiven. So open your hearts with me to God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you know, you know. You know at one level how messed up we are. You know how we rebel against you. 
You know how we put ourselves first. You know our insidious and persistent habits of disobedience to you and lack of love for others. We're not hiding anything from you. If we say we have no sin, we're kidding ourselves. You know. And deeper still, Lord Jesus, you know what sort of people we are. (laughs) Precious children of God. And we bring our stuff to you so that we'll know that you know. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would work in each of our hearts, that you would raise up new shoots of life in us to trust your grace and to trust your love, to know how good you are. And when you say, come follow me, we go, oh yeah, I'm in. I pray that you would, by the power of your forgiveness, work much love in us, love for you and love for one another. We give you our lives because you've earned it, because you've bought it. You've purchased us for yourself. And I pray that you would make of us to be such a people, such a community, embodying your grace for one another, that we would not forget how good you are, but that you would embolden us to live for you in every way and every day and make us to be a light for the world, to know, oh, they're not hypocrites. They don't think they're better than everybody else, but they know you that people would see that we've been with you and would want to know your love and your grace for themselves. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to live in your truth and grace. We pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.